Hey, I'm Mason King, host of the IBJ Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feldman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays. So go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you can never miss an episode. Just search the Indiana 250 off the record. Thanks. This is the IVJ podcast for the week of September 25th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. The term artificial intelligence and its technological underpinnings have been with us since the 1950s. Simply and broadly stated, AI refers to the ability of a computer program or a machine to think, to reason, to generalize, to discover meaning, and learn from past experience. The implications excited the popular imagination as technologists and storytellers foretold the future with utopian and dystopian scenarios. In the utopian world, computers perform all of society's menial tasks and free humans up for lives of leisure, greater productivity, and enlightened thought. In dystopia, computers decide humans are superfluous and dangerous creatures who should be exterminated. A sudden leap forward in the development of artificial intelligence has been the story of 2023 in the business and technology press. The questions of the technology's advantages and risks are much more specific and immediate now, as businesses hear warnings that they need to take advantage of AI or else drift into irrelevancy. When cheerleaders say AI can make businesses more productive, what exactly does that look like? As with the advent of any major technological evolution, Will workers lose their jobs? You've probably already run across a list of careers that are immediately vulnerable, such as tax preparers and law clerks, industrial designers, computer programmers, content creators like yours truly, market research analysts, financial analysts, graphic designers, and even customer service agents. Another question, since data is the fuel of the AI revolution, how can companies keep theirs safe? How can companies avoid unintentionally violating trademarks from existing content fed into AI engines? How can AI avoid adopting the biases lodged in previous data? The latest issue of IBJ is almost entirely focused on how AI suddenly has become a game changer. For this edition of the IBJ podcast, I pose the preceding questions to the founders of an Indianapolis-based startup dedicated to helping business clients integrate AI into their operations while hopefully avoiding the pitfalls. Named Stellar, the firm has been up and running for less than a year, but its executives have decades of experience working with AI applications and developing AI products. Brett Flincham is the CEO of Stellar. Zach Linder is the COO. And here's our conversation. It's 
my pleasure to welcome to the IBJ podcast, Brett Flincham, CEO of Stellar. Brett, thank you for making time today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. And we're joined by Zach Linder, who is the Chief Operations Officer for Stellar. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Mason. So I'll give you and our listeners a little bit of background on this episode of the podcast. The latest print issue of IBJ is almost entirely dedicated to artificial intelligence. And like everybody, we sense that AI has hit an inflection point, if you will, where it's now much more relevant and applicable to business. We thought it was important for us and our readers to dive in as quickly as possible to get a handle on it. Here's a quick caveat. I am almost certainly going to ask a bunch of dumb questions. Humoring. <laughs> I've got ChatGBT pulled up to help me answer all of these. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. It's funny. I realized when I was preparing questions for this that I should have been asking this of ChatGPT. Absolutely. It's our time. And here's a heads up to listeners. That might be next week's episode <laughs> because I figured because it can't talk. So anyway, uh, if you were to let the cat out of the bag, I feel terrible. <laughs> Before we go any further, let's get some definitions. When we say artificial intelligence, it's just the blanket artificial intelligence, what are we talking about? Yeah, so I, I think AI, artificial intelligence has been a, a kind of a dream of automation for decades, right? It, we, we've always been so close to being able to crack the nut on having machines to be able to do all of the, the things that we don't want to do in life. The reality is it's been far from where we've ended up. And, but over the last several decades, we have made a lot of process through computing power. Things are easier to process. We've got more storage and compute capabilities. The math has really come a long way. Automation has come a long way. All of those things kind of combined together have resulted where we are today in having machines be able to do a lot of the heavy lifting of, of the work that uh, previously wasn't wasn't doable. So AI is really just the culmination of all the the mathematical work, the technical work, the compute work that's combined together to provide this really awesome output of machines automating what we see as tedious tasks in a lot of cases. Yeah, I would add to that the uh, I you know it's interesting the term was coined in 1956, and I say that because I, I just was at a at a conference where that came up for some interesting discussion. So to Zach's point, it's been around, you know, a long time. The, uh, I, you know, it's interesting because it's, it's really an element and it's the next step in predictive analytics, you know, meaning being able to predict what's the next thing you need to do, what's the next thing you need to say. And if, you know, predictive analytics is something people have some familiarity with. And I think if you think about that component to artificial intelligence, it, that's, that's been the, the, the important step. The thing that I've gleaned from our issue, uh, which I've been able to take a, take a look at, is that really, I mean, if you really want to take it down to just the essential, it is, it is the ability for a computer program or a machine to think by itself and to learn by itself. Is that... Yeah, I think no, that's fair. That right. Yeah, I mean, it's staring us in, in right in front of us uh, with Amazon uh, product recommendations, right? Net Netflix is telling us what to watch, and now it it's just taking the next step in in being able to be a little more thoughtful and and predictive on on how else can this interact with our lives. I mean, we've got Alexa, we've got Siri, we've got all of these things. They're small little components of AI. Combine all those things together, and you get the exponential power. Right. So now there are th 
three, tell me if I'm wrong, three areas where Stellar puts a lot of its energy. Uh, and one of them is called generative AI. And uh, some people might recognize that because uh, I, I believe chat GPT is, is a form of generative uh, AI, and, and that is the thing that people have probably taken the most interest in in the last year or so. I, I remember like having a, a Christmas dinner with my nephews, and it was all about ChatGPT because, <laughs> because you know, Katie barred the door, it was able to write college papers. So that was the thing people latched onto the most. But uh, go a little farther into that. What what is generative AI? I'll take I'll, I'll take a shot at talking about that. The you know the the key element is something called a, commonly called a large language model, but it allows you to interact in natural language, which is which is a really compelling part of what this bigger picture of generative AI. Um, and we, I'm sure we'll probably dive into that notion of LLMs a little bit. But the, but through you know interacting with data and information, you can actually generate new content. So you use the example of that gets a lot of attention of a school paper or certain things where you're actually actually outputting new content based on things that have been absorbed and learned. And that's the notion of generating, right? You're actually generating new content, new ideas, new new music, new videos, anything to add on that? Yeah, unique right. content too. It's, it's not just reusing things like uh, you can go generate images of uh, an astronaut hitting a home run in Yankee Stadium on a rainy day when there's a rainbow out there. And in four seconds, you're going to have you know, three to four images of this. It, it's fantastic. Like it's, it's, it's an awesome toy now and we can't wait to see what it does to become more of a business utility. Yeah. I mean, it's not like doing a web search where you say, what is baseball? I mean, it's synthesizing information from a million different sources, depending on how much information it received to give you something newish. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah. think about how amazing Google has been for the last decade. This is that plus so much more, right? Because it's not just returning a bunch of lists of things that we're looking for, which Google does a fantastic job of that. It's it's actually answering the question that you want or creating the thing that you want or doing the thing that you need it to do. It, it, it's really an amazing step forward. Now, in the business world, where are we seeing now generative AI make the most impact? It's a great question. And, and Zach just hit the key point, uh, which is, you know, the fact that you can ask a very specific question and get a very specific answer. So if you think historically, even Google search, where you look up something, you get pointed to a document, you get pointed to a website, you get pointed to something, but you've still got to go kind of dig into that and discover the conclusion with with chat gpt and with with generative ai and large language models you can ask a very specific question and get a specific answer to that and i think just to comment on the business impact of that you know we're used to it as zach said in our daily lives whether it's directions somewhere or setting an alarm that you tell alexa to set an alarm but in business, when you can actually interact with your data and you can say, how much did we sell yesterday? What are my payables to go out by the end of the month? What are our top five receivables? And you can get a very specific answer versus typically where a business is going to some dashboard that they've constructed or they're querying that data in some way to go find it. The fact that you can interact with your data in that manner is, is transformative for, for businesses. And it, it, 
it really translation has kind of become a thing of the past, right? Everything is now translatable into any language that we want. So imagine any multinational corporation or uh, an entity that's got people who natively speak different languages. All of your documentation is typically stored in one language. We can shift that to any language that we want it to be. There's the ability to not start from scratch, right? What's the hardest part of starting anything? It's like, what's the first thing that I write down on the piece of paper? Well, if I need 10 ideas, I just ask chat GPT for 10 ideas and they're going to list it out. And then I can say really expand on number two and it just expands it out. It's it's like a conversation with the really smart version of the thing that you're looking for and provides you all the answers you want. And some of it's great, some of it's not, and but you get to pick and choose. So it really allows people to take that first step that might've been the hardest step to take. And then you can iterate and, and improve upon what it's providing you. And there are lots of folks, I mean, like me who generate things. Right. I generate podcasts. I generate uh, emails. I generate news stories. This is my understanding. Uh, generative AI actually can can make computer code. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we don't we don't <laughs> I don't want to say we don't need a computer programmer, but it can do that job, which, you know, strikes fear in the heart of computer programmers. Error. It can write news stories if you want to write news stories yep. with varying degrees of accuracy. Social media captions. I mean. It can do the job of a lot of people like me who generate things. Yeah, it definitely can. Uh, but I think like box scores, uh, uh, sport event recaps, uh, stock analyses, those things have been automated uh, or, or AI generated for a few years. Uh, that hasn't broken anything, right? I think everybody's still okay um, with computer code, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah there's there a lot of really upset sports writers. Out there. <laughs> They're like, oh, I can't do boss scores anymore. Exactly. But, uh, so, but it's the same kind of thing with programming. Can it go write code from scratch? Yes. You can tell it through very specific prompts on here's exactly what I'm looking for. Here's how I want you to tweak it. But also look at it from the perspective of I have a really smart editor that can sit right next to me and look at my code and tell me how to make it better. How do I make this uh, smaller, shorter, better functioning, more optimized, right? There's there's all of these benefits that that it helps all the existing programmers and, and code developers out there today in ways that you used to either not be able to do or have to go talk to other people, more time consuming. So I, I think it's really just going to accelerate things, right? It, it's not that we should be worried about the AI is just going to go do all these jobs for us. It's going to allow us to do the jobs that we want to do better, faster, and hopefully not worrying about some of the, the things that bog us down, right? And so how, how do we use it to improve our lives uh, is really the exciting part. I think the other important thing is because we get really focused on the output from, from AI, but without the right questions being asked and the right input. And so, you know, several of those examples in the code writing example, someone's got to ask the right questions and, and, and provide that oversight and direction. And, and what's nice is you're kind of elevating the person that's, that's doing that well. Right. And, and, uh, well, and think about what kind of doors it opens for people. There's a lot of people who don't know how to code, but through ingenuity and creativity, you can now go ask the uh, different generative AI tools to then get you started on this. And so it might open the door for a lot of people to do a lot of things that they previously weren't capable of doing. And now they've got the tool set to go do that and at least get started. Let's jump real quick to large language models. Yeah. <laughs> what does yeah. that mean? Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it, by the way, it's the transformative breakthrough that's generating so much of the, the, 
you know, the, the hype right now, right? And it's just the ability to speak in natural language and be able to interact, you know, with uh, effectively the computer device, but really with your data and, and to do that natural language. And, you know, I'll use a, just a couple of quick examples. We just did, in fact, I was in, at a government meeting and we did an example of, of someone filling out their tax form and they, they were, and we did a demo of multi-language. We had 10 or 12 languages and you could pick the language or you could just type in, you know, your question and then whatever language you typed in, you'd get basically instruction back on how to complete your tax form. And what's kind of interesting is, so you've got the multi-language component, which is what the large language model brings, but then you've also got the government proprietary tax form data, right, of how, you know, it's very specific what the answers to that question are. And so the interesting thing is you can kind of blend this, hey, I'm going to go take this large language model and everything I've learned about diverse set of languages, but when I apply it and answer this question, I'm not going to go out to the web. I'm not going to go out. I'm going to go out to a defined set of data and answer that question very specific to that to that set of data. So it's a, you know, it's a beautiful combination, right, of being able to leverage natural language, but also be able to work with proprietary data. Yeah, I think LLMs are just the way we've been asking a lot of things of machines and, and being given canned results and responses. This is a way for machines to respond in a way that's more unique, more creative, and and more human-like. And and that's that's the power uh, of the tool. With when you add the generative capability, it's now responding in a very human-like tone. Machines are now equivalent to human fluency, probably better in a lot of cases, and and that makes the the power of the response that much more unique and and interesting. And improving, 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 which is, you know, and it's improving so rapidly. I mean, and that's one of the things that's just, uh, you know, it's exciting about the space, but, you know, the quality of the answers, we're used to interacting with, you know, whether it's a, a chat bot on a, on a customer service app where you're getting information that's helpful, but it may not be just right and it may not be communicated to you in the way that you best receive it. But that's improving dramatically, you know, day over day and week over week right now. Do I have this right uh, just in terms of, of, I'm going to say LLM, large language models. There are a lot of businesses that generate a ridiculous amount of data. And I'm going to, because we're in Indianapolis, I'm going to say like uh, the creation of pharmaceuticals or people who you know, work with molecules. They generate an incredible amount of data and then they need to take that data and they need to figure out how we, it can get that data to do what you want it to do. And so my impression is LLM helps the people who are who are trying to interpret that data, get a better handle on it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think like, we've seen lots of uh, advancement in AI with protein folding and, and predicting uh, different potential molecules and things like that. It, it the, the LLM gives you a way to interact with that data that you might not have had before, right? You've got a, a bunch of different document types that um, you, you don't know where they are, how to get access to them. Unifying all that around uh, a large language model and then uh, enabling you to interact that with that and ask the questions of it, that's where the power is, right? And so you still need to have all the 
the important processing of knowing what's what, but but it's that interaction. You we you just haven't had a way to interact with your data in that way before. You can search and find something in a Word document or flip through a, a PDF or something printed, but just being able to ask, here's what I'm looking for and have have the machine give you the answer, or here's here's what I think it is and here's where I found that. That's that's the new part that LLMs have opened the door for that hasn't existed previously. And the third one, machine learning. What does that mean? It's a subset of artificial intelligence. It's a critical building block. And, uh, you know, it's, it's typically associated with algorithms and um, it's, it's more traditional. So AI kind of sits at the top and leverages machine learning and algorithms and math to ultimately bring the generative capabilities and sort of the more advanced intelligence. But underneath it all is machine learning and machine learnings, you know, has been around a long time and uh, it's continuing to advance and evolve, but it's a critical kind of sub element of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Just imagine you scrolling through your favorite social network and then you're pausing on certain friends or images or videos, the machine is saying, I'm going to remember this and I'm going to put more of this in front of you because I want you to stay on that screen a little bit longer. And so that it's just learning from your habits and behaviors. Is this, this is who I need to blame. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all, yes. <laughs> because when, yeah. when suddenly, like, like when I'm looking at YouTube yeah. and I'm like, oh, it's, this is an interesting video about D-Day. And then suddenly my whole feed is about D-Day. And then Absolutely. it's then it's about weapons. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's about war games. Yeah. yeah. And then you get flagged as a as a uh, as a concerned user. That's right. <laughs> don't, don't tell me that. <laughs> but I suspected that all along. So is this one of the situations where like it, it sounds like what it is? It is a machine's ability to learn based yeah. on, on more and more results. Yeah, absolutely. And and think about like we read all the time about how you mentioned how much data we're creating. We're, we're creating more and more data every year on an exponential scale, right? Because of all the, the different tools we have, how they're plugged in, the different things that we're tracking, internet because of things. Of, because of this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Taking pictures with your phone. Everything's right? being yeah. tracked. Listening to me when, I'm, right. <laughs> when yeah. I don't think it is. Right. Yeah. But it's the connection of all those things that if we're creating all this data, we might as well track and store it and use it. And humans just aren't, aren't capable of doing this. It's too much. But having putting a, a few machines on top of it and, and having them make the connections that we might not ever think of, that's where they learn, progress, and then can create new connections. And, and then that's, that's just where it really uh, turns into an exponential technology. The thing that I hear the most in the business context is, well, this will increase your productivity. Wow. <laughs> How does that I, work? <laughs> I'll use a, a practical example for for us, right? And and uh, which is I had to create a bunch of new job descriptions because we're hiring. And you know, that's a that's a tedious task. And and frankly, you know, you put a lot of thought into it and what are the characteristics of the person you want to hire. And I long and short of it is, you know, I use Jap chat GPT to kind of create an initial framework, right? And and I tell them the job description, key characteristics, that role, just verbally, right? Articulate that. And then you get a first pass at it. Well, the first pass is not that good. And so then you refine it and refine it. I added some stuff. I wanted some DEI language, right? That I wanted to get at the top. And I ask a few questions and sort of prompt it to iterate on that. But basically in like two hours, I had eight, what I would call really 
I mean, they were sufficient and good job descriptions. And I would say if I were doing that, writing that, I mean, literally it would be, it could be a week's worth of, you know, just ongoing time and doing some research and trying to figure out what are the key characteristics of this role versus that role. So I think some of that, you know, that, so for me, and I mean, my productivity, right, to be able to do that in two hours and then get on with the things that I really need to be doing and wanted to be doing and to get those jobs posted, get candidates coming in. I mean, that's just a, a win, 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 right? So. Yeah, I think it's going to accelerate things because you can do more. And I, well, we're daily users of ChatGPT and, and similar tools. And I don't view it as just creating more work for me. I view it as like, I'm able to knock a bunch of things off my task list and that make me feel really good about that. And so I, I just feel like it's accelerating our ability to go do the jobs that we want to do. And if you measure that in some productivity way, I'm sure there's probably some productivity gains. There's probably all kinds of time consumed with like, how do I get this per perfect prompt written to get the output that I want. But um, but it, it it is just accelerating what you're able to do in, in the same time quantity. So this brings us to Stellar. So what is, then is the foundational idea? Was there an aha idea moment that said, we need to be doing this? I, you know, interesting thing, we all in our kind of core founding team Working at different places, by the way, not all at the same place, but having a lot of relationships. We, to Zach's earlier point, we've been working in AI machine learning for ten or twelve years, pretty uh, diligently. You say we you mean founders. all of us in different at other companies, right? Yeah, right. We're, the founders, yeah, yeah. yeah we're working in that that space, and a lot of our early employees that we've hired, people that we know, but we knew we had a lot of a wonderful teammates and resources, right, that could really contribute in this space. And and when uh, this uh, generative AI kind of broke onto the scene, we, we felt like it was a transformative event. And we felt like bringing that to business actually is what we were interested in. And, you know, the fact that we're based here in Indianapolis, our, our, all the founders except for me actually live in Indianapolis. Most of our early employees are all in Indianapolis. But we had this vision of really bringing this generative AI capability to, you know, the, to the Midwest, right? To, and I don't know if I should name companies, but whether it's the Cummings Engines or whether it's Eli Lilly or, you know, just companies that we thought could really leverage this technology. And we felt like we had a base of, of employees and experience that could bring that value to business. And, and, you know, as we were discussing, it's so commonly used at home, but it, it was not, it's not used in, in the enterprise. And we, we, we really envisioned an opportunity to bring this capability to the enterprise. So what's, what's the elevator pitch? I'm a, I'm a guy, I make uh, t-shirts. <laughs> I make t-shirts. Uh, and I've got a big factory and a, and a distribution center. And, and I'm like, guys, I, I keep hearing about AI. Why do I need what you guys are selling? There's a lot of touch points. I'll give a few. And Zach, you can layer on to this. You know, one from a customer service 24 by 7 element, right, where you can put an interactive chat bot, right, that's available that, that 24 by 7 customers can call you. They can ask questions. They can query, where, what's the status of my order? I want to change my order. I want to do these things. Interacting really easily in natural language, right, and getting those kind of things accomplished. 
And then, you know, just fundamentally, and, and Zach used the words engagement with your data. I mean, when you're running your business right now, uh, to know everything you need, need to know to be successful, whether it's creating a new marketing campaign or your financial data or even your employees and your HR data, being able to interact in natural language and just progress those tasks so much more quickly. I just think your your day-to-day job just accelerates. It becomes, uh, you know, you, you used the word earlier, productive, but, it, it, you know, you become much more productive. Um, yeah, there's a, a guy named Peter Diamandis who founded the XPRIZE. He's a technologist and pretty well, well known in the AI sphere. And he said that there's two types of companies – uh, those who embrace AI and those who are out of business. And so <laughs> right. I don't think it's quite to that degree, but yeah. uh, but th- there is going to be a lot of competitive pressures here. Those who figure out how to use this and insert it as part of the normal operations of their business. Think about like nobody was posting on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram 20 years ago, right? But now it's a very normal part of everyday marketing activities for the company. And it's not that you're dead if you're not using social media, but you're definitely not getting a lot of the leads that uh, that that those who are are, are generating. And so it, it's that type of movement uh, that's going on. You, you, you need to figure out how to go incorporate this into your business. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and our conversation with Brett Flincham and Zach Linder of Stellar. So Stellar, uh, you guys will help me figure out what I potentially could need or what I potentially could use uh, and then help set me up and train me. Yes. Train my staff to use it. Is that sayonara? <laughs> or, yeah. or are you going to need to help? continue to help me? Yeah, no, that's a good <laughs> question. You know, one of the things people ask me, they often ask me, are you a consulting company, right? Do you come in and, and you're going to, and my answer is, you know, consultants build PowerPoints and we build software and solutions. So we, we sort of, oh, so you, our, you can actually build a, build an IA solution. That, that's right. AI solution, that's right. I mean, we leverage, we leverage things. For example, we're not going to go build a new LLM. We're going to leverage LLMs that exist, but we're going to put an infrastructure around it. It makes it safe for your business. We're going to protect your proprietary data. We're going to kind of implement for you. So we're, you know, we're a services company. We deploy that infrastructure for you. We're going to teach you how to use it, how to leverage it for your business. It's not sayonara, you're gone, but it's also not the traditional services model where, You've got a lot of people that hang around for a long time that absorb a lot of money. And I think about some of the big kind of consulting companies, that business model. We actually think that generative AI disrupts that business model. And now a smaller company like us can come deploy technology that's super empowering. I mean, I think there's ongoing customer relationships for sure, but I don't think it's that, you know, you, you need uh, a huge IT department right now to, to support that, right? We're trying to provide technology solutions. Uh, yeah, those were my questions with 
So I, I say, oh, you know, I got three IT guys. What's Why don't I just ask them to do that? Your yeah, response would be what? Yeah, you can, right? And, and they might love to do that. And that might not be a bad place to start. But, you know, there's the term enterprise grade, for instance. It's anyone can go to ChatGPT and get a good answer one time, right? But if you want, what do you need out of a business? You want it to be predictable, scalable. If you want that kind of output, you really need to figure out how to operationalize this. And so how do we take all these amazing technologies that are out there, bundle them together in to meet the needs and, and use case that you're looking to solve for, and then put the appropriate wrappers and, and operational process around this to make sure are the answers right, right? These things hallucinate and, and, um, and might not give you the right answer. And so how are you protecting against that? How are you making sure that your answers aren't going rogue and, and saying uh, incorrect or inappropriate things? How are you making sure that the right data is being fed to it? There's all these other processes around it to make sure it works the way that you want to, just like with anything, right? You got to have the good inputs to get the good outputs. And it's really that that whole process that we're helping customers implement. And if you think about, and I'll just use an example, like a big healthcare provider, where you're weaving together you know, lots of transactional systems, customer billing systems, patient record systems, right? Just huge sources of data. I mean, this is not stuff that you want to, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but play with chat GPT with, right? It's, it's HIPAA compliant, super important data, right? So to Zach's point in term of putting wrappers around it, safety, and and the real value uh, like a stellar can bring, as as Zach mentioned, is this hallucinations and this this kind of risk of getting bad information can dramatically mitigate that risk, leverage your proprietary data, protect it. It's actually really important. I mean, it's a great question, uh, Mason, because it is it's super important. And and I was just uh, in Colorado meeting with some prospects and customers who are super concerned and and. They actually were, were uh, discussing the fact that they need they actually need to engage with us because their employees are doing it on their own anyway, and they're remote and they're putting data and information at risk. So, uh, Seller launched officially was it last month? But right. you guys have been in stealth mode for since February. Since February, yeah. So, who did you think at the beginning your customers would be, and as that as it turned the answer turned out to be a little bit different. It's a great question. We we really envisioned it as an enterprise solution, and Zach used the term enterprise grade, and that's that's what we've envisioned. And I think we are fulfilling that vision, and we we feel pleased with that. We're also, I would say, working uh, with other companies, right? Some mid mid sized companies, right? That we find have the needs. So not just the the large enterprise. And then we're actually, you know, there's such a robust, particularly here in Indianapolis, there's such a robust startup community that we're actually partnering with a lot of companies as they're building out new applications to be their AI and gen AI kind of engine and builders for them. So I'm sorry, when you guys say enterprise grade, what does that mean? What's an example of that? I mean, that's the the big guys, right? That are Fortune 100, Fortune 500 kind of companies, right? Yeah, extra secure, uh, you know, very compliant, audited system, just has all kinds of protections and been tested and tried in a bunch of different use cases to make sure that it's up, running, robust, and scalable, and uh, and safe and secure, yeah. right? But yeah, and these are companies though that do have like big IT departments. Right. Are, are they receptive to having 
an outside fur come in and, and tell them what to do? Yeah. It, uh, by the way, great question and super important to our business model. You know, one, we make this comment that anyone that tells you they're an expert in Gen AI is is likely to uh, lie about other things because <laughs> there's not there's not many of them. And we actually say about our our own company that we're experts in the making, meaning we're we're hard at work at this, but we've been hard at work at it a long time, and we do feel like we bring a lot of very specific expertise and it's not common. So the, the short answer is, you know, even though it's, it seems like, uh, yeah, there's, a, you know, big IT departments that support, but typically you need a trusted partner with very specific expertise in this field and, and think that's what we, we bring. How many employees do you guys have? We're up to about 20 now. Um, so we're, we're uh, small, but growing. Is that all full-time or there's some some contractors in there some contractors we've got some we've got some supporting resources in serbia and actually some supporting resources in india so we're we're kind of building out a global framework to scale the business how many would you say full-time employees in an Indianapolis. About half, roughly. About 10. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. yeah. And um, more coming, by the way. So, okay. So. Right. How many clients do you have now? Uh, about a dozen now, r- roughly. And uh, got a nice pipeline of work. So we're, we're optimistic. We got a broad array of customers. We're actually doing some interesting work in the legal space. You know, anybody that's rich in text and rich in documentation. So the legal space is an amazing opportunity, right, to to ingest a lot of documentation and then be able to do really interesting things with it. And I'll I'll tell you one other one just because I think this is such a cool one. We're doing some stuff. It's it's actually not in the state of Indiana, but it's with child development and uh, human services, and uh, and you know that's a note centric field, right? So you've got you know the client and their address and you know where they live and who their parents are, but the the meat of those histories and relationships and that's that social work is actually in the notes and those notes are often they're you know they're hard to find the information you need the history you need all of that uh, you know kind of stuff and ai is such an enabling tool for that right it's it's amazing so so text centric document centric companies uh, there's terrific use cases mm-hmm. so and, i can, so i can you can feed it into the system and then i can converse with it right yeah Right. Right. And and but I, I use the notion of tech centric, which is true, but really data centric. Right. So the and that was the vision with enterprise customers. You know, people that have if you got a big healthcare provider that's got thousands and thousands of patients and data and lab results and history, you know, and just if you're data rich, you're a terrific use case for Stellar and for generative AI in general. Right. What are uh, your potential customers or your customers? What are they concerned about? What are the things that were that great, seem like red flags? I, I, I don't mean to take the airtime no, here, but good. boy, I just came from a, a, a conference where we had a lot of discussion about this with customers, by the way, and and it's really around proprietary data, right? And and you know, can I? Th- there's a there's a concern that if so that note. Let's use that 
human services kind of example, right? There's concern that if I integrate with this large language model generative AI, that these proprietary notes are going to get out into the in you know into the world effectively, and uh, so there's so. I think that's where we have an important role to really teach people about how we can protect, secure that data. You can leverage this broader knowledge, which a lot of it is the language capabilities and some of these other broader insights, but you can bring that to your data without taking your data out there and putting it at risk. So there's a lot of concern about, about that piece. And of course, the stuff that you read in the paper, and I'm sure Zach will have a good uh, joke about uh, one of these <laughs> things. But the uh, I was just going to say the IBJ is behind a paywall, right? And so you don't want to give all your access uh, away for free, right? And so um, it's the same kind of thing. A lot of this information is held behind uh, paywalls of sort. And so how do we make sure that they remain there and the data remains private, but you still get all the value and the access that, that you want to, to have out of it. I would just like to say that the IBJ podcast <laughs> is not behind it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all about the free. <laughs> the, the, and the IBJ paywall. Please tell your friends. It, it's a very worthwhile uh, paywall to get around, right? <laughs> you should pay that subscription. So at my level, <laughs> the, 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 the menial white collar laborers, we're all worried about losing our jobs eventually to AI. So let, let me just throw an example. So we were talking about my, uh, my t-shirt factory. So you talk the chat, uh, the chat bot, right. It's handling my customer service. Well, what happens to my five people, uh, who have been doing customer service for me, including my niece. Right. Uh, by the way, it's a great question. And, and I've thought about this a lot, uh, spoken about it a lot and, you know, continue to kind of wrestle with it. But, you know, if you if you just think historically, all the enormous innovations in technology, and, and they certainly create some risk for some roles and some things, uh, but, but they also equally just create lots of jobs and opportunities. And I think some of that's a little unknown, which is the scary part right now. But I continue to believe that's going to be the case. I use this example when I used to go visit my dad in his office and he had an in basket on one side of his desk and he had an out basket on the other side and there were <laughs> memos and notes. And and all of a sudden there was a computer. Right. And it was like, well, wait a minute. What about the, the folks that are writing the memos and handing the memos? And now there's no uh, you know, there's no inboxes and outboxes on the desk. And but, you know, did those jobs go away or was tremendous opportunity created from, you know, computers and the other things? And I, I really believe this is going to be the same. I think there is a transformation, um, you know, the, the notion there's a, a new job category now and it's called a, a prompt engineer. Right. And that job didn't exist before. And and that's one of the early ones that's emerging right now. But I suspect there's going to be a lot of new emerging jobs and emerging opportunities opportunity. I feel really optimistic about that. Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be shakeups, right? We've got the writer strike and the the uh, actor strike are all kind of related to this and, and the usage of AI, which I think is a legitimate concern, right? It like it it can go like we you can go have ChatGPT spit out a script for a movie for you and you know, like go start filming it. 
and it could probably be pretty decent. You can even have it generate the content <laughs> it behind be it. Any worse than <laughs> yeah. Expendables Four? <laughs> but I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, so th- like I think there's going to be shakeups, right? For sure, there's going to be a lot of jobs that materially change or might not exist. But I think we've been through this uh, cyclical nature many times in history, right? Farm to factory. Think about, we, we've got cloud engineers now. We used to have a lot of people that managed uh, racks and servers in, in basements and closets, and, and those don't really exist as much anymore. Th- there's the consolidation of all these activities, and the, we're going to continue to see that. But also think about, I'm just an optimist in this use case. So your niece who works at your t-shirt shop, now maybe she doesn't have a job as a customer service rep, but now she's got the opportunity to go start her own t-shirt design company that she can sell back to you because she didn't know how to start a business before. And through interacting with ChatGPT, she's learned how to go do that and file incorporation papers and go code a basic site and create some designs that she likes. And so it does open up a lot of doors that previously haven't existed. So for all the downside, I think there is uh, a lot more upside for everyone that just has access to uh, this wealth of knowledge of human history at their fingertips that just hasn't ever existed before. Okay, I'll jump on that. Okay, so my niece, (laughs) she starts the t-shirt business and she's like, ah, I don't need graphic designers. I can just tell ChatGPT to give me uh, a design for my shirts. And I say, and I'll just go into the Museum of, of, uh, of Modern Arts uh, database and I'll just plug in all these existing works of art. And I really like this person's stuff. I'm going to plug in all their works of art. And then I want something sort of like, like you know, uh, Bob, who, you know, works in Indianapolis. I kind of like his style. There's some real big ethical problems there. Um, how do you keep – boy, this is an existential question – but I, I guess from your role, you know, as, as helping companies do this kind of thing, how do you keep them from uh, crossing those ethical boundaries where they're basically stealing stuff? Well, that's why we're focused on their own proprietary data instead yeah. of the public <laughs> sphere, right? Because we don't want to get involved in that legal conversation. I mean, it's a fair point. It, 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 who owns rights to what and when can things that are freely available for public use be reused for other types of content generation? I mean, every, everything historically has been built on what's what's already been done. We take an idea and we build on it. We take an idea and we build on it. This is taking it to a different scale. But uh, I think we're just going to have to see how that plays out, right? And, and again, that's where we don't have to worry about the art or anything like that. We want to focus on what are the data needs that you have that is your data, clearly your data, and how do we go help you access that? Right. So that's, that's your role. I mean, you're, you're, not, you're not just protecting their data, but you're protecting them from misusing existing data that's outside of their bailiwick. Yeah. 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 Despite my comment that I don't like this uh, being associated, being a consultant, there is a consultative front end to our work. And oftentimes, in particular, these large enterprises want to get into AI, machine learning, and generative AI, but they're they're not ready for that. And that can, it's often can be sort of your data quality and other kind of infrastructure components, but it also can be, do you have an ethical framework of how you want to deploy it? And those are things we help customers with, right? And and a lot of it is, I mean, that that 
ethical piece is it's it's things that you have embedded in your culture and your company, and then it's how do you apply it to generative AR, AI and a large language model framework. And and there is a, a consultative component, a component of our front end, and it's to get people AI ready, right, to, to actually build and deploy. And we have, I mean, kind of this problem where the genie is like way out of the bottle. And we have retroactively, we have creators like George R. R. Martin, for example, uh, Sarah Silverman filing suit against, I don't know who they're filing suit against, honestly, maybe it's ChatGPT, saying, you have already taken my stuff and fed it into your machine. And now when people, you know, the marketing person says, I want to come up with a funny ad, funny ad copy in the style of George R. R. Martin. It's already using it. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that I think those are complicated and, and you know, and, and they're not resolved yet. Right. And, and companies don't know how to or yet how to wrestle with that. But what I like about what we're doing, the space we play in, if you go back to a large enterprise, whether it's an industrial company or or a healthcare company, I mean, you can deploy a lot of the frameworks of safety and concern and ethics, HIPAA, et cetera, that they have and apply it to this infrastructure, apply it to the decisions that this artificial intelligence is making, how it's interacting. So, you know, fortunately, uh, we're not playing in the Sarah Silverman space, right? (laughs) And, And I think those are really tough issues, but I think we can bring a lot of ethical concerns and and help customers navigate and manage that. And that, that is part of what we uh, aim to do. I'm going to go out on a ledge here. Financial services. I get the impression that this is, is something that would be useful, uh, financial services. If I am using previous data, let's say on lending practices, um, and I'm plugging all that into my system and telling it, okay, use this, this previous information and make some decisions for me about who I should loan money to. If there already was like a bias in that data, how do I keep it from leaking into my current decisions? I get bias in terms of like who I lend to or where their properties are, stuff like that. Yeah. Zach, you should probably comment. Zach has really interesting experience in the HR space. By the way, we are doing some interesting financial services stuff, but I think your work kind of eliminating bias in the HR space is is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you just look historically at what's been done and you expect the machine to do anything more than that, then you're asking more of the machine than what it's going to uh, be able to do. You're just giving it information and say, do more of this, right? This has worked before. I want you to maximize this outcome. And that's what it's going to do. That's where the human element of this is really important. Um, so uh, to, you know, on this uh, HR example, uh, what we had done is in looking at job descriptions, there are certain skills that are older, um, let's say. And so if it's an older skill, it's more likely done by a white male uh, because it's a 20, 30 year old technology. Think like COBOL or something like that. That's a really old uh, uh, mainframe. That's another thing, right? Where at that time, most people doing that were just white and male, Um, which means now, because not many young people are getting into the mainframe business, um, that would still be pretty consistent. But if you're looking for that skill set, you're probably going to find a white male. But what if we can find what are similar technologies of the people that might not be with that specific skill set on the resume, but what are similar technologies that if listed, they're comparable. And so now you're looking for 
um, not only the specific thing, but the surrounding things. And so it, it, it gives you a way to extend your search and reach to open it up uh, a little bit more and get generally more diversity uh, in your applicant pool. And so that's just an example of how do you kind of correct for the, the historical tendencies and behaviors. And every model has a couple of bias. There's mathematical bias that, that you, you need to account for, which is a, um, a different process, but then there's just the historical bias. And so you have to be thoughtful of these things because if, again, if you just tell a machine to do what it's done in the past, it's going to do exactly that. And so you have to inject new things and new ways of thinking. So that way it can, it can achieve the outcome that you need. But it also means you got to keep a close eye on it because it's, it's just going to go through these rote tasks and execute them. The, right. These are important reasons to your earlier question, Mason, though, of why we exist, because we bring a lot of expertise in this, not trying to just plug our company, but it is, you know, relevant to what we do. And I just wanted to prompt you, Zach, on one thing. How about just commenting on the notion of masking? Because I, I think you guys and you've done stuff that actually just it remedied bias problems versus created them. And I think it's, I think he's just got tremendous experience. Yeah. And th a lot of this was driven by Morgan Lewell on our uh, chief data scientist as well. But um, we, in the resume world, right, it's pretty easy to uh, make some assumptions based upon name, right, or, or or location or where they went to school. And so how do you take all of those things and then obfuscate and, and hide the, the, the pieces of information that could be indicative of any proprietary uh, race, religion, sex, gender uh, type of information, hide that, but leave all the good stuff that's in there as well. And make sure that when you're comparing individuals for a role, for instance, that you're looking at the important things and not the unimportant things. And so whether you want it to be uh, known or unknown, there is uh, bias just by looking at someone's name, address, and, and, and information. And so whether it's unconscious bias or not, it's still there. So as much as you can hide that and just and focus on the things that are important, so the meat of the resume, for instance, then you make the selections and uh, advancements of the, the meat of the resume, and then you uh, open yourself up to a much more diverse pool. Mm. Okay. So I think I got that. So I'm an enterprise level company have a bunch of openings, I potentially could be getting 10,000, 20,000 resumes. So I do need, I do need AI to help sift because I can't, I'm not going to look at all of these myself. And so you can teach it to ignore some of these things that would make a value judgment essentially, and only focus on particular parts of the resume that are relevant to the job. That's definitely part of it. The other part is like actually masking the resume. So if I want to look at it as a oh. human, like on my screen, it's 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 removing oh, all wow. that other information. Okay. So right? I cannot see. I cannot. Yeah. And then just to be real, well, real quick on this, there's all kinds of laws in the uh, HR space specifically. And um, in New York, for instance, New York State, uh, you've got to get audited if you want to use AI to uh, to uh, uh, help out with your HR practices. And that's going to continue on in other locations. I mean, it's it's just a very complex legal uh, space right now, and it will continue to get that way. And so AI in general in this space is just really concerning. That's an excellent point because, you know, our legislators, not just Indiana legislators, but our legislators, as usual, you know, are a little bit late to the party. <laughs> and they're trying to figure out, you know, how do we corral this genie somehow? And, you know, they're all, I mean, as far as I know, every state's going to have a different set of, of uh, qualifications 
or requirements for this technology, it seems like something phenomenally difficult to track. Oh yeah, it's gonna be really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. especially, Every, especially if you if you have a company that works in several states. Yo, absolutely. Yeah, like the uh, the which most companies have presence in lots of different states, right? They're, they're, uh, even on like uh, pay transparency, uh, there are a few states that require you on LinkedIn and Indeed postings that you've got to put how much uh, pay, uh, what the salary is going to be. Some states that exist, other states it does not. It's those kinds of complexities that as these legislatures figure out what their prop policies are, Washington hasn't done a great job of coming up with any guidelines. And so a lot, it, uh, some of this is coming down to the states and they're making their own decisions. And it, it could be very helpful, but it could also be very complex just to understand who's doing what and, and what is legal, what's not uh, legal, and and what's the best practice to follow. And it's going to be really hard. I think what's so interesting too is it, because you, you certainly hear the bias issue raised a lot and a lot of concern about it. And I just think it's amazing that there's actually an opportunity to do better. You know, it's not that I actually am going to risk what I'm doing, but there's opportunity to do better. There's opportunity to do worse, by the way, if you if you don't have thoughtful technologists and thoughtful leadership in this area. But I think if you have that, I think it's it doesn't get the the visibility it needs that you can actually do better, you know, and, and I think that's super powerful. Well, this is a lot to think about. Guys, thank you so much for helping. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's thank, been fun. Thanks, thanks for having us. Really fun. My thanks again to Brett Flincham and Zach Leather. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the latest issue of IBJ is chock full of stories on the new relevancy and accessibility of artificial intelligence. We have stories about AI's potential impact on the Hoosier workforce, how artists and pharmaceutical developers are using the technology, how schools are preparing students for the future of AI, and how Indiana and other states are approaching potential regulation of AI. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thanks again for making time for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.